Um, Homer Hickam is a famous author. Homer Hickam. Well, he is for West Virginians because he's from West Virginia. And he wrote uh, at least 12 books. And the most famous of them was called Rocket Boys. Uh, it was made into a movie, uh, October Sky. It, it's, it's a true story. Now some of you, now some of you know. It was uh, a, a true story about a group of high school students from Colwood, West Virginia. I'm telling you, that is in the heart of the southern West Virginia coal mining area. Uh, they went to Big Creek High School. That was the big rival high school of my own high school, especially in football and basketball. And I'm telling you, this sort of thing wasn't real big there, but it was out of that place that these boys, in the midst of that coal mining territory, got interested in science and in engineering and built rockets and launched them. And eventually they were able to win a national science award. And Homer Hickam was able to uh, to be with and work with uh, Banner von Braun. And in fact, eventually he went on to become an aerospace engineer. Working here sometimes, right at uh, right at NASA, doing spacecraft design. But more than that, he was also studied as a medical doctor. He became a war hero in the Vietnam War and received the commendation and bronze star medals for heroism in the war. And uh, I've had a chance to hear Homer Hickam speak. He he grew up just a little bit away from where where I grew up, and one of his constant themes really fits Father's Day today. And that was uh, how difficult it was for his father to be able to relate to him as a son. Because his father there in Colwood, West Virginia, had the same values that almost all men in southern West Virginia had, which were two things, coal mining and football. But Homer Hickam wasn't interested in either coal mining or in football. Now, now his father was a successful man. He'd always been a coal miner, and he had risen to become the superintendent of the coal mine there in, in Colwood. And yet still, he didn't quite know how to connect with this, this son who loved science and engineering and, and writing and medicine. And this does come out in the October Sky movie. And in fact, I thought it might be something to be able to remember. I want to show you at least one small clip of this and at least one reason is I want to see you, you to see where I grew up. But I want you to see some other things, too. Yeah, Sam, it's something up here. Hey, Dick. Hey, Homer. I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate what you did for me. I know it wasn't easy for you, so thank you. Hey, uh, we're shooting off our last rocket day at 5 o'clock, so if you'd like to come and see it. I got a lot of work to do. All right. Well, I just thought I'd ask. Here you met your big hero. Didn't even know it. Look. I know you and me don't exactly see eye to eye on certain things. I mean, yeah, we don't see eye to eye on just about anything. Dad, I come to believe that I got it in me to be somebody in this world. And it's not because I'm so different from you either. It's because I'm the same. I mean, I can be just as hard-headed and just as tough. I only hope I can be as good a man as you are. I mean, sure, Dr. Von Braun's a great scientist. But he isn't my hero. 
Well, they almost got the accent right. Came, came real close. Uh, I thought of Homer Hickam as I was thinking about the message that I wanted uh, to bring to us today. Because I think there are a lot of us as fathers who can relate to that weighty responsibility of fathering and not quite feel up to it. Right. And especially because sometimes there have been some schools of psychology that have told us that almost every major problem in the world goes back to distant fathering or obsessive fathering or something like that. And, and we just don't feel quite capable of doing what we need to do to make a, a difference in our, our children's lives, especially when we have children like this who are so different uh, from the way that that we are. And I, I just have to be honest with you. Uh, I thought back as I was thinking about the message today to the first months that I was a a, a father when uh, our daughter Heather was born and how I just didn't feel very well equipped for this task. Um, I had a lot of education, but it just seemed like it was so hard, especially in those early months to be able to relate to be able to relate to her and you know especially when she'd start crying and I figured I should be able to deal with this thing and, and yet the things that I had learned to do it didn't seem to work although it didn't work to be able to say I'm just in a seminary Heather I'm going to give you three biblical and theological reasons why you should go to sleep I really tried that sort of thing and it didn't didn't work at all and there were so many times, and I tell you, especially in the first nine months for me, as fathers, I think we have challenges at different times, don't we? But I remember so much those first nine months that they were so hard and, and I just felt like a failure. And I'll never forget, I was pastoring right up the coast, the central coast here, and thinking, I, I'm really messing this up as a father, and I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to tell other people about good parenting. Lord, I'm not up to this thing. All of this came flooding back into my mind as I was getting this message ready this past week. And I am just convinced that I'm not the only dad who has ever felt that way. Fathers, I mean, deep down, we know this job must be doable, right? I mean, there have been a few people who've done it over the past millennia. (laughs) There are a lot of people who, and yet sometimes the responsibility seemed to be so weighty. And in spite of that opening, I want to tell you now, after so many years of being a father, that in my own life, there have been very, very few blessings that the Lord has given to me that have been greater blessings than this privilege that God has given me to be involved in the lives of my children, uh, Heather and Brandon. Uh, I'll just tell you that at the very beginning. Remember that, whatever else I say. So so, um, my message is going to be, first in, in first respect, for all of us, who are fathers, who may have times in our lives, maybe even right now, when we don't feel quite up to the task. Um, but really, I'm going to be talking to all of us, to, to any of us who ever face a time when there is something that we think we should be doing or a calling that we think might be upon our lives. And we don't feel quite big enough for it. Do you know what I'm getting at when I say that? And I want you to know that when that calling is from God and we sense that and we're faithful to him, we will find that we are up to it because he is there and he is sufficient for anything. It really is a similar kind of a thrust of what I talked about a few months ago when I talked about Jeremiah. Do you remember that message? But when we come back to Moses and we look at this longer section that runs all the way from Moses 3 through 6, we get some insights into this that I think are so helpful. In fact, I find the text we're looking at this morning to be incredibly relevant to us right now. Because Moses didn't feel he could do what God was calling him to do. And on one side, the excuses that he makes about why he's not the right person for it, 
Sound just like the excuses I make, and I'm guessing many of you can connect with them too. And then second, I'm, I've been praying that the resources that God provides, and especially the way that Moses seems to be able to learn to rest in and utilize those resources, which may not have been the ones he would have chosen, but the way he is able to use the resources God provides is something that I'm praying will teach us all a lesson uh, today. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we know that Moses got the job done. Uh, that, that's why we're reading his story here today, right? We see it in Exodus 3 through 6. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at his reasons for reluctance. They're, they're found there all the way through the text. And almost all of them are related to a sense of personal inadequacy. And then I'm going to come back and look at the provisions God gives and how when we have those provisions, we use what God gives and see that he does more than we ever could have asked or even imagined. So first of all, these reasons for reluctance, it's really the entire sweep of these chapters. But I'll tell you, the place where it culminates, and in some ways it, it's a kind of painfully funny when you see it, is in chapter 4, verse 13, where Moses comes and says to God, Oh Lord, please someone send someone else to do this. He uses all these excuses, and at the end of the day, he just, oh, Lord, I don't have anything more I can say. But please, send someone else to do this. Now, I think um, when Moses was younger, he was a whole lot like the way that we are, that we think we can do a whole lot. And even if we don't think it, we'll try to act like we can. And remember, he had tried to do that. He had tried to do that. When he saw his people being oppressed... He had decided when that one Egyptian was, was oppressing one of his own people, he was going to go take care of it. And in an act of heroism, he had gone and killed that Egyptian, and it had just messed everything up. Um, his own people scoffed at him and wouldn't follow him. The Egyptians went after him and tried to kill him. And we find him scooting off into the desolate wilderness, hearing nothing from him for four decades, when then God breaks into his life. And uh, makes a big, big change. Turns him aside. Remember that word? The burning bush turned him aside from the way he had been going. Turned him back uh, to God. But when he said, here's what I want you to do. I am going to rescue my people through you. Moses, at age 80, said, no, that's impossible. And so what were the excuses that he used? I'm going to put them up here. And I want all of you to try to think whether you've ever used these yourself. And maybe you're using them now. Uh, the first one I'm, I'm calling a realistic personal modesty. Th does that make any sense to you? I didn't know quite how to say this. He, he just was, had become a modest man. He, and he was realistic about it. He just had recognized over these many years that the things that he thought he could do after he'd been brought up in Pharaoh's home with this outstanding education and I should be able to do anything. By this time, he, he, he felt like, certainly in his own strength, he couldn't. And in chapter 3, verse 11, this phrase just captures it. So Moses said to God, who am I? I mean, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites, who don't want anything to do with me, out of Egypt who don't want to do anything with me. He, he's really saying, humanly speaking, God, I am a, the worst possible choice. I mean, there may have been a time, it's like he said, there may have been a time back when I was there in Pharaoh's court when everybody would say, oh yeah, he's the one who, who's the, the appointed one to do this. But now there's been a complete change 
in the leadership there, and, and there's some evidence that that's true, that, uh, that there was a major regime change just at that time so that the new Pharaoh didn't know who he was. And he said, even the Israelites, my own people, he would have said, they don't know who I am. Maybe my family does. But God, I've been out here in the wilderness with sheep. I can't be the right. Just this sense that there must be somebody who has greater gifts than I have for this kind of a task. You ever felt that way? A second excuse he uses is a lack of of knowledge and a lack of, of experience. There are other people who just seem to have been trained better for this. And, and Moses was especially, the thing he lacked knowledge about was about God himself. And this in chapter 3, verse 13. So, I'm supposed to go in your name, God. And, but if the Israelites ask me, what is this God's name? Then what am I to tell them? Now, if you're, you're visiting here today, you don't remember that a few weeks ago, I pointed out that a name isn't just a label among the Jewish people in the Old Testament. When you knew a name, you knew something about the person. And what Moses is really saying here is this. God, I'm supposed to be going in your name and telling them to trust you as if I'm a person who knows a lot about you. But I don't even know who you are. I I think if he were living here in Pasadena, he would say something like this. If he came to you and asked you to do a major task here at Lake Avenue Church, you would say, you know, a week ago yesterday... There was a graduation right here in this place of Fuller Theological Seminary. And there were all these people who had MDivs and even PhDs in theology. God, they know more about you. Ask one of them. But not me. So once again, if you looked at it humanly, he just didn't seem to have the knowledge, the education, the the training to do this. Uh, Third excuse. A fear of failure. He'd failed before. It was painful. It really goes home, doesn't it, when you start thinking about this this way. And now he just feels like he's going to fail again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, Moses said, What if people do not believe me or listen to me? And they say something like this. The Lord did not appear to you. Not, Not to you. I don't want to over-psychologize it, but I don't think I am. I, I don't think this thing that had happened when Moses had tried to take matters into his own hands and had failed, I don't think that had ever gotten out of his psyche. He just didn't feel like a leader. He'd been out there wandering around with dumb sheep for 40 years, out in a no-man's land. He had no confidence. And you know, once you've tried something and, and you failed, it's hard to step right back into it. Once you put your hand in the fire and it's been burned, you don't feel like putting the other one right back in, do you? So this fear of failure can keep us from doing things, even if God calls us to it. Fourth, a realistic one, he had a lack of gifts, at least in the human eyes. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, I love it, so kind. Now, now pardon your servant, O Lord. I've just got to ask you, I want to ask if you've noticed something. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, and I love this phrase, nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and I am slow of tongue. Um, And it's clear that he was. This matter is going to keep coming up again and again and again. And it's if he says, now everybody knows, Lord, so you must know that if you're going to lead a whole people out of one nation and across this kind of wilderness terrain, you have to be a good communicator. 
And I, I can't even talk. I've never been able to talk. And, and this is what he added on. And, you know, even since we've been talking here at this burning bush, I haven't been able to talk. You've heard it. I've been stammering here. I can't be the right one. I don't have the gifts for this. And you look around, you see people with enormity of gifts. Wonder why, why can't you have somebody else do it? And that brings him to the last point. And I am so thankful for the powerful message that Pastor Jeff Matisich brought last week. He was right on target with this main element, element being fear. And I think the fear of stepping out and doing something he hadn't done before set in, where it culminates in that verse 13 of chapter 4, Moses said, Oh Lord, just please send somebody else to do it. Because one thing that Moses did know firsthand was the might of Egypt. He'd been there, you know. He knew their their military might. He knew about all their chariots. He also knew about this wilderness terrain and what it would be like to try to lead a whole people across that wilderness. He knew that. Um, And knowing these things, he's just afraid of stepping into it. He wasn't any longer this naive young man with idealism. So Moses, by this time, didn't have the desire, the heart, or the nerve for this kind of a calling. So when I summarize it, just think about yourself. Is there something you've been asked to do or think that you should do? And maybe some of these reasons are the kinds that that you use. A a personal modesty? You just don't put yourself forward? A, A lack of the right kind of training, it seems like, for this job? Maybe a past feeling of failure? Well, how could I do this? A lack of the particular gifts needed for that job and and especially um, fear Uh, I'll be honest with you when I um, was asked to leave being a pastor back a number of years ago to become a university president I just first laughed I think most of my family kind of laughed too I mean I've been a pastor my whole life what did I know about university presidenting and I remember saying to the uh, head of the denomination and the chairman of the search team. I said, sure, I'm the right person for this. I know nothing about educational administration, and I know nothing about running an $80 million business. Other than that, sure, I'm the right person. It was scoffing. And yet, they and the Lord wouldn't uh, give up. And so I went, and the Lord was sufficient. And that's what I see here when I see Moses. There are times when we know God has called us and we have to step out. Now, I want to show you what God provided for him. But I thought there's one more thing I have to add because it's so true to life. There's one thing else that happened because Moses did get up the courage at last to step out and do it. And, you know, we always think, all right, I'm going to step out and do what God called me to do. And then it's going to be smooth, right? Then everything's going to go well. But for him, it didn't. And I find this so true to life. And I just want to get you ready for this sort of thing. That sometimes you step out and do what God's called you to do. And you think, well, now God's going to really bless and it's going to work out. And then it even seems to get worse. I won't ask you to vote if that's ever happened in your life. But I I put up here a section. When things get worse, the experience of disappointment and how I, I think God would have us to respond. So what happened is Moses gave obedience a try. Some things went okay at the beginning, but then it got tough. I mean, really tough. And when you get over to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, here's what we read. So Moses then returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, 
Have you brought this trouble on this people? I mean, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you still have not rescued your people from Egypt. Do you know the story? So he steps out with all the fear and doubt, self-doubt, steps out and starts okay. Uh, He couldn't speak, so God gives him Aaron. Uh, He gets a warm reception from Aaron. Aaron will do it. Now, it's really interesting that from this point on, even though Aaron's supposed to be the spokesman, we hardly ever hear Aaron speak. It kind of becomes like a teddy bear at night, just somebody to be alongside him. But that works out okay. Then he goes to the uh, Israelite elders, to their leaders, and God gives him some supernatural signs. You know about them. He does them. Um, And they, they say, yes, we're in. So Moses has these first thoughts. All right, this is going better than I ever could anticipate it. Now the big part. I've got to go see the Pharaoh. Now, Father, this is where, God, you have to to step up to the task. So he goes forward and he does it in chapter 5, the early part. But then horror of horrors in front of the Pharaoh. It's as if God has thought, it's time for me to take a vacation. I'm going to be gone for a while. And Pharaoh, you know, does not let the Israelites go. You know, he makes things worse for them. And then that that makes the Israelites even angrier with Moses than they had been before. And their morale drops like a brick. And, And the way they thought about Moses, his credibility goes down with it. And I don't know if there's much that is harder than what you see in verse 21. When Moses loved his people and wanted to serve his people and had made this decision to rescue his people, but they wouldn't follow him. Here's what he said. As they spoke to him, they said, Moses, may the Lord look on you and judge you. Look what you've done. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Because Pharaoh, being so upset and not listening at all, had made the work even harder for the Israelites. Some people say we in corporate America can begin to understand this. When uh, we say, all right, things aren't going well, you can keep your job, but I'm going to give you less money, but you've got to produce more. I hope none of you have had to experience that. But that's what they had to experience. They had to keep being productive, but didn't have the resources to do it. They became angry, and they turned against Moses. And I, in my putting myself myself into his shoes, I think this was the hardest time of all. I always feel like it's one thing when those that we know are going to be enemies turn against us. But when those that we are actually wanting to serve also turn against us, it is so hard. And fathers and mothers, this is often one of the hardest things about parenting, is if you seek to be uh, available to God and to be a good parent, and then to find out that your own family won't listen to a thing that you're saying. Can you see where Moses was here? It was devastating for him, and it would be for us. Look the way it plays out in chapter 6, verse 10. So the Lord then said to Moses, one more time, he said, Okay, Moses, we're ready to go. Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites out of his country. But look what Moses is thinking. But Moses said to the Lord, Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? 
since I speak with faltering lips. I don't know if I've communicated this text well today. I'm just telling you, this is real to life stuff. Don't you think? Don't you feel like this was written to a situation any one of us could face? So it looks like Moses is going to be an utter failure, go into oblivion. But here we are, and we know that that didn't happen, right? I mean, here we are, and the message is about Moses. We know that God used Moses mightily. We see on one side here how, how tortured he is, tortured with feelings of inadequacy, brokenhearted that the people that has loved his own people have turned against him. And he sweeps back into him are these feelings of self-doubt, fear. I just can't do it. And yet we know he did it. And that brings me to the, the point I want you to have some things to take home with you. I called it God's response to the reluctance. But the response is God provided him with some gifts. But the thing I want us to think about is that Moses was able to, to settle in and be thankful for the gifts God provided. And then utilize them. And God then did more than you could have ever anticipated. They would not have been the gifts that, that Moses would have asked for. But they were the ones that God decided to give him. And they were enough. Because the question is, how did Moses get away, get from this point of being a failure to the one that everybody knows now he delivered his people from slavery? How did that happen? Did he take a course at the USC Marshall School of Business and Leadership? Did he go over to Fuller and take a class in how to lead and manage religious people in a congregational church? How did he get from where he was to where we know he is? Well, I just want to tell you about three provisions that were there. The first one I'll summarize this way. He knew he was called by God, he knew he was known by God. And that's one of the things I'm always praying that when you come to church, that when you come to this place, that God will speak to you and that you will know that you are known by the maker of heaven and earth and that he has a call upon your life. Now, you have to think about church going differently from Southern Californians when you think this way. You're with me here, aren't you? I want you to tune in right now. I've been here four and a half years. And you know Southern Californians are almost all religious, spiritual people. Almost all. I occasionally get somebody who pushes back, but almost all are spiritual and religious people. But Southern Californians seems to me, for the most part, the ones I talk to, are interested in religion mostly for what I can get out of it. I'll come and I'll bring my call upon God. I want Him to make me more successful. I want him to give me an inner peace while I continue to do whatever I want to do. And maybe, Pastor, that's a pretty big church you have. I'll even go and get more sales clients for my business. It's almost this thought that, that we're the ones who come in and do God a favor, and then we're the ones who call him into action. Let me tell you, the first book of Moses, book of Genesis, is God introducing himself out of the darkness, speaking, I am here and I am God. And when I speak, things come into being. And therefore, when we are known by God, God is always going to be God. And because of this, when he began to know that God knew him and had made him and had created his mouth, began to be able to rest in the fact that 
that he not only was known by God and called by God, but that when that happens, God is going to complete what he has called him to do. It changed things. And it will change things for you and me, too. And this is where for fathers and mothers, there is sometimes when we have a child, we think, well, should I have had a child? But I'm telling you, children are made in the image of God. So the moment we have our children, we know we have a calling from God. I'm not sure that there is a higher calling from God that we have. And the moment we have that calling from God and we come in and know that we are known by God, there's only one thing that God asks of us. Is this what Jeff talked about last week? He asks us to be faithful to him. That's all. So if you're walking through some times where you're being faithful to God as well as you know how to be faithful to God and things aren't going well, you still trust God because it's his work. It's his call. I I really view this for us as a church. We come to church We're in Southern California here where people need to know that people really trust the Lord. And yet you come and the financial resources aren't all that that your pastor would want them to be right now. And yet this is God's church. He's going to give us everything we need to do whatever he wants to do. If we'll just be faithful, that's all he asks us to be. And then to pull back and see how God is going to use us in the midst of those challenging times. So, fathers, you know that God wants you to be faithful to your calling. So in what ways would I want you to be that? If you still have the opportunity and your marriage is still together, be faithful to your wife. Of all the things you have to do, be faithful to spend time with your child. Pray for your family. We've been made with minds. Learn as much about parenting as you can. It's a good stewardship. And even as you do, continue to grow in your own walk with God. Now do all those things and other things the Bible tells you to do. And you're still going to have some moments when, like Moses, things aren't going right. And yes, just like Israel, there are going to be times when your children push back against you. But when you're faithful to God and you're loving the people that God has given to you, he will be faithful to his calling upon you. Any amens? Uh, Second, uh, God gave him gifts and he utilized the gifts that God gave him. In Exodus 4, one of the things was he gave him that he had that shepherd's staff. And you know what happened. He, He said, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. He turns into a hissing snake. He says, pick it up. God, I've been in the wilderness longer than you. You don't pick up snakes. Pick it up. Picked it up and he turned back into his staff. Now, some will say it's kind of a trivial uh, gift. Um, In some ways, symbolically, it was really powerful. Because the snake was the symbol of military power for the nation of Egypt back under the pharaohs. So the military chariots would have had a snake on them. So you see what God is saying. That seem like they're great military powers in this world, but I am greater than any of those. So in many ways, it's just a powerful gift. It's just not one he would have probably chosen. He would have said, I'd rather have the military power myself. Uh, he told him, take your hand, put it into your cloak, pull it out, and it, it's leprous. Put it back in, pull it out, and it's clean. Uh, once again, as he's going to lead his people through wilderness, this is one of the things they're going to need to know. 
that even when times of sickness and injury come, that God is greater than that. Uh, then, then, then the culminary, he told him, uh, uh, take some water, and he has him turn it into blood, which shows that God is in control not only over human affairs, but over all of creation. Now, once said, these were not... These are not the things that Moses, I'm sure up front, will say, this is what I want you to give me. One, two, three. (laughs) This is what God gave to him. And Moses learned to trust him and to step out in faith and to wait and see how he would use them. And so I say to you as well, you may not have all the gifts right now that you would say, Father, for me to get this stuff done, I want this. One, two, three, four, five. But I tell you, if you'll take some time to pull back, you'll recognize that God has given you more than you could have ever imagined. And if you will be faithful to put that to his use, he will do great, great things. Then the third lesson. Maybe it's the main point. It really is the main point of the whole book of Exodus. Is that he learned to practice the presence of God. He learned that God was always there. I told you this in the first message, didn't I? That the main theme of the book of Exodus is that God is present everywhere and at every time, even when we don't see him. Uh, and he learned, needed to learn to practice that presence and trust that when temptations came, God was there and could help him to be different. That when enormous challenges came, God made the heavens and the earth and God is there and will prove himself to be sufficient. Practicing the presence of God. Did you know um, just a week and a half ago, I was down at Biola. I had been asked to lead and moderate a uh, colloquium on Genesis and science for the uh, uh, Council of Christian Colleges and Universities. Many, many came together with their boards and science departments and academics who were there. And uh, one of the men who was alongside of us there was Dr. Bill Hurlbut. Do you know of him? He's from Stanford University, part of the medical school there, uh, teaches medicine, also is uh, in bioethics, and he's a brother in Christ. And I had a wonderful time talking with him about these situations of of pain and and difficulties that come into all of our lives and what we call a theodicy. How how is God present or working in times where all the pain is coming into people's lives that we can't understand? And he made such a good point that I just grab hold of. He says, when I read the Bible from beginning to end, the one phrase that God always gives when things are happening in your life you can't understand is I will be with you. You find it in Moses, you find it in Jeremiah, you find Jesus describing himself as Emmanuel. You find that great verse in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble, so we don't have to be afraid. Amen? And so there's that phrase that I want to make sure that we, you and I, learn as Moses did. Ah... To grab hold of. That when you leave this place today, God goes with you. And to hear God say, I will be with you. I. Who's the I? Who's the I? God, the one who's the maker of heaven and earth. God, is the one who loves to walk and talk with people. God, who eventually would send his son so that we can know him personally. I will be with you. Who's the you? Who's the you? It started here in Moses, but it's you and me as well. 
Brothers and sisters, when we face challenges that are greater than we are, this is what I want you never to forget from this morning. I pray that you will hear the voice of God speaking to you. I know this is hard. I know you're unsure that you're the right one for it. But I will be with you. I'm going to end pulling us back to that first gift that he gave us. Ken Meadham was here not so long ago. He sings this great song called Throw, Down, Throw It Down Moses. And he goes back to where that uh, shepherd, that humble shepherd staff that he'd used to walk with and to, to direct his sheep with becomes the rod, the staff of God, but he had to throw it down and learn to trust God and see that God would do more than he ever could. And I put a part of that song up here. I want you to think about it. The rod of Moses became the rod of God. What can you do with a shepherd's staff? Well, with the rod of God, strike the rock and the water will come. With the rod of God, part the waters of the sea. With the rod of God, you can strike old Pharaoh dead. With the rod of God, you can set the people free. So what do you hold in your hand today? To what or to whom are you bound? Are you willing to give it up to God right now? Give it up. Let it go. Throw it down. And I will add and hear God say, and I will be with you. To his glory. Amen. Amen.